This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 196, The Rate of Return of Certainty. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. It will be a scuba diving type episode. We're going to go deep, but we're also going to get practical. So bring your gear and let's dive on in. Now, I almost titled this episode, Why Rate of Returns Don't Matter. Uh, I also wanted to make sure everyone knew that a lot of this content comes from a summary of an article written way back in 2003 by Les McGuire. Les McGuire. He's written the article called The Economic Value of Certainty, and there's so much jam-packed into the article, and I just have to give major props and kudos to him. We will come back to Mr. McGuire later on in this episode. But first, I want you to imagine driving down a highway. Now, if you'll allow me, let me paint a picture of this highway. Let's imagine that this road is shrouded in storms and darkness. Let's say that there is hail and ice all over the roads. There are downed power lines. There's trees, debris cluttering the landscape. And to make matters worse, your brakes have been giving you trouble lately, and the windshield wipers just are not getting the job done. Now, how are you feeling now as you pummel down the highway at, let's say, 70 miles an hour? Maybe you'd want to touch the brakes. Maybe you'd want to slow things down just a little bit. Maybe even rethink your route or take a break, pull into the nearest hotel and stay the night. Now contrast that road trip experience now with a completely different road. Driving down the road, there's no ice, no snow, the car is in pristine working condition, the sun is shining, you can see for miles and miles in every direction, and it's an only an open flat road. The speed limit has been raised to 75 miles per hour for this particular stretch of highway. How do you feel now? How do I feel now when I go flying down the highway at 75 plus miles an hour? right? Now, what if I told you that this was the exact same stretch of road, just under different conditions? Does the increased certainty that you have with visibility and more allow you to change the way you drive without fear? Could it help you increase your speed or at least your confidence that you can get there safely? In the end, the road might have been identical in both scenarios, but your behavior varies greatly based on the degree of certainty you have as you make that drive. Now, what does this all have to do with financial strategies? I would say just about everything. Last week, we talked about writing a contract with your future. Now, if you haven't already, go back and listen to that episode 195. The prevailing methodologies of most financial and insurance planning professionals are plagued with an error that will almost inevitably be a fatal flaw to the ultimate value they bring to their plans and to their clients. This fatal flaw may be overly simplistic to even just say this out loud to everybody, but its implications are huge and far-reaching. In fact, I'm going to go further onto my soapbox here and say that the problem of the objectives that most financial planners have out there, along with their underlying philosophy for financial planning, even violate the core principles of basic economics. 
Okay, so just to be clear, I do think most financial advisors are honestly trying to do their best for their clients. I simply think the lack of their training in economics and the tools they have to test the validity of their strategy versus other strategies limits their ability to clearly understand the substance from the illusion in the plans that they're creating for their clients. That's right. I said illusion that they're creating in plans they make for clients. Most financial planners, in my observation, having worked with many over the years, is that they are trained and educated in products, in company knowledge, basic tax law, maybe even historical market performance, and of course, plenty of sales skills. But all these are fine, and every advisor must understand them. But too many professionals, I believe, lack the skills in what I call real economic analysis. In fact, let's go back to the root word, economics. Economy is actually from a Greek phrase, oikos and nomia. Oikos, nomia. Get it? Economy. It means household system. So e economics is really the organizational system and a way a organization manages itself or a household manages itself. Some people refer to economics as the science of scarcity. I want you to think about that for a minute, the science of scarcity. Economics is not just about money or finance, but rather the science of the efficient use of anything that's scarce. So for example, time economics is how we use the scarce resource of time in our life or in our household or our organization. We could do the same with calories and biology or any number of things that involve scarce resources. Let's take this further. The economic costs, the economic risk is not just related to the price or loss of money. There are many non-financial resources that you really have to consider. Things like time, effort, focus and attention, hope and integrity, desires to contribute, willingness maybe to take a risk. It's entirely possible for the price to be low, but the economic cost to be extremely high. So a true cost-benefit analysis has to consider more factors than just what's on the fee schedule of your 401k. In addition to what we do see, for example, uh, fee schedules on an investment or the volatility or market beta, say, of a particular stock, we also have to really consider the consequences of what is not seen, but nevertheless real. I'm reading a book right now called The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. Great title, great book so far. One of his best questions that he lays out in, in helping us all think in this book is, what do I not see? What do I not yet see? Great little question to help you journal or explore what's missing. And that's true with financial risks as well. What do I not yet see? Fraud and embezzlement could be a classic example of economic loss that's not on your fee schedule of your 401k, but is still very much real. Bernie Madoff recently was in the news. He'd recently passed away this spring. He ran the largest Ponzi scheme in recorded human history. And as far as the cost and risk that was visible on his prospectus, it probably looked like a sure bet to put your money with old Bernie. You know, he had low fees, very low risk on paper. However, his real but unseen factors included both short and long-term consequences with many very wealthy people losing all of their life savings and Bernie himself spending the rest of his life in prison. I suppose if he had written these costs and risks into the investment prospectus, he probably would have had fewer investors as a result. 
So free market economies are built on this assumption that value is exchanged between two self-interested parties. Let me say that again. A free market is a free market economy is built on this assumption that value is going to be passed back and forth between two people who are self-interested, two self-interested parties. What this means is in order for, for us to be really profitable over the long term, you got to use your unique abilities to provide maximum value to other people. In this way, money is really just a certificate of good performance from your fellow man. Rabbi Daniel Lappin said this to me, and it stuck with me, that money is just a certificate of good performance from your fellow man. And most of the time, financial planners have as their stated goal to meet their financial objectives of their clients. Now that sounds great. Sounds like it could go on one of those, you know, Hallmark-styled uh, websites. You know, meeting the financial objectives of our clients. That's what we do all all day long at ABC Financial Firm. And that sounds perfectly reasonable, but it's really seriously violating the principle of unseen risks. Let me explain what I mean. For example, a financial planner might ask somebody in his office, "Hey, how important is disability income planning?" And maybe that client feeling rather smug and, and confident in his ability to work might say, you know, disability income planning, that doesn't really sound cool or sexy. It won't give me any kind of rate of return. That is not important to me at all. And he might be saying this based on what he sees, that he's been able to work thus far. But in reality, what he doesn't see is that he might face his future. He might leave the financial planning office and be disabled one month later. All of a sudden, disability income protection is very important. But the financial planner meeting that blind client's objectives would leave major risks unseen and therefore the client is not served well. So multiply this by about 30 other risks that we all take in our financial life. What are we talking about? Well, risks like inflation, taxes, market downturns, even living too long. And you can begin to see that we don't always know what we don't know and what we don't know can hurt us. I'll say that again one more time. We don't always know what we don't know and what we don't know can hurt us. The best that stock market investment planners can do is to tell clients that the only thing they know for sure is that all of their market-based projections will be 100% wrong as soon as the ink is dry on their prospectus paper. And that the client will have to come back every year, every quarter to reevaluate and update their projections based on the actual market condition. Now, more savvy investment planners will create things like Monte Carlo simulations. And while they are more comprehensive and sophisticated, Monte Carlo simulations are still limited by historical data. This is like driving down the road, looking in the rearview mirror. The trouble with using things like Monte Carlo simulations is that the future has not happened yet, and the past won't happen again. If, on the other hand, we use the concept of the science of scarcity as our only objective, it would mean we'd need to make the most efficient of all of our existing resources with the highest degree of certainty and confidence possible. So since most clients uh, that I talk to anyway, we're only dealing with a finite amount of money. You know, not, not $100 billion here. We've got only a certain amount of money clients come to me with uh, when we sit down and talk about their financial situation. So we've got to find a way to maximize what they have and minimize unseen risks. That's got to be one of the foundational elements of financial planning. So people come to my office all the time saying that they think they know what their retirement income needs to be. 
Mark, I'm going to need 75 grand a year or 150 grand a year to live comfortably in retirement. But really, does anybody really know? No, of course not. How does anyone know what a dollar is going to be worth in the future? How do we know how long we're going to live or what our health needs might be? What if it costs us a hundred times more to cover medical bills than we planned for? Or, you know, on the positive side, what new and exciting things might you want to do in your retirement that you haven't even considered yet today? What if in 30 years, there's a new, incredible, life-saving drug created and invented that can extend your life for 50 years and that you'd have to spend $100 million on it to spend before it's even being developed? How could you save for something that's not even being developed yet? And even if you were able to afford such an expensive drug, would you want to take it? Would you want to take that drug if it meant extending your retirement funds and risks over yet another 50 years? So guys, as you can see, with all of these unknowns, it's best to answer the question of, hey, hey, Mr. Client, how much money do you need in retirement? The best answer to that question is, you know, Mark, I have no idea, but I need as much as I can get. That's about the best answer any of us can really give. So what people really want is to be allowed to dream big without restraints. That, that's maximizing the value in every area of life with as little risk and as much certainty as possible. I want ice cream and I want a six pack. <laughs> I want high reward and no risk. Now, even people who tell me, Mark, I'm risk tolerant. I can handle the risk. I can take the risk. To me, I believe they're kidding themselves. And I don't think it's on purpose. I, I think nobody wants to risk, which is the possibility of losing money. It's just that Many people believe that they think that risk is a prerequisite to making money, that risk and making money have to happen simultaneously. That's their belief. It's their limiting belief because that's what they've been taught since birth. If you can make the same return with no risk, that would be the default option everybody would take. Even Warren Buffett, someone who should be able to lose a little bit of cash and afford some risk still says his first two rules of investing are, number one, do not lose money. And number two, do not forget rule number one. So how do we discover strategies that will give people really, truly what they want, which is short and long-term maximization of all the resources with minimal risk and the highest degree of confidence and certainty? How do you do it? How do we do it? Well, many people might want me at this point in the episode to jump right to a product right to a financial magical bean. And I'm sorry to disappoint you here for at least a few more minutes. But first, I want to suggest that it is a process, not a product that will be your answer. The first piece to the puzzle is the skill to take the time to discover what you want, really want most in your life. Only when we understand our true desires and objectives can we really begin to test various strategies and products to see if those products and strategies will take us to where we want to go. Only when we know what we truly want can we separate methods from objectives. Again, that's key right there. So let me say that again. The only way we can truly know what we want is to separate the method from the objective. That's crucial. If we begin with methods, we might end up following someone else's objective or plan rather than our own plan. So what am I talking about? Well, the method of a 401k. It's handed out to millions of Americans every month in this country. Now, what does a 401k really do to help us meet our objectives? 
Think about that for a minute. Here's another one. Having a paid-off home is not an objective. A paid-off home is a method that the client believes will give him what he wants. What he might really want is not a paid-off home, but the security and peace of mind that a paid-off home might give him. And not having a mortgage payment, which might increase his cash flow or happiness, is based on a spiritual philosophy. I mean, what if you could achieve all of that, having that cash flow, having that happiness? What if you could achieve all of that, but yet not have to have your house all the way paid off? The key is not to get mixed up in the method with the objective. If you don't heed this principle, guys, the next piece is going to lead to economic risk and stupid tax every single time. So that's the first piece, not to consider the process, but rather to focus on a product. I'd say rather than that, focus on the process, not the product. That's the answer. Next, we must have skills and tools to test possible outcomes to have any choice or combination of choices over time. Now, it was always tough playing my dad chess because he was able to play at a master level as a chess player. Good chess players are able to predict future moves of their opponent. They can run a, you might say they can run a Monte Carlo simulation in their mind. What has this opponent done in the past in similar circumstances? What's the likelihood that she'll move her rook to this position on the board? What a good chess player does is look into the future like that and use Monte Carlo scenarios to think about what might be done. But a master chess player understands that his objective is to move to the ideal position at all times, both in terms of safety and opportunity across all possible circumstances. This strategy, this, this skill really is difficult and very rare among chess players, but it's what separates the good chess players from the true masters. Now, most of us are playing average chess with our money. We know that various pieces on the board can do certain things. We know the rules of the game. We know that our IRA is going to be taxed in retirement. We know that our savings accounts don't earn us much interest. Simple rules like that, and those are fine. But the game is won effectively by coordinating your pieces on the board over time based on the approach of keeping the most amount of safety and opportunity over the longest period of time. So this is not merely focusing on the most powerful pieces or having some sort of preconceived move that you make every single time. Sometimes that queen can be made much more powerful simply by moving a pawn in the right direction. Master chess players should focus not on the inherent strength of the queen or the pawn or the rook or on certain pieces or, or in the financial world, financial products, but rather they should be looking at the strategic coordination of everything on the board. They should value protection at a premium, even above opportunity. They are patient with their capital because they know that once they lose their resources, lucrative opportunities are lost to them. But if they can avoid losing their chess pieces or their financial resources, their lucrative opportunities will arise. Taking that metaphor further, chess is really a game of economics. Remember guys, Economics is the utilization of scarce resources. So chess and finance actually have a lot to do with each other. The best way to make economic financial choices is not to bet the future based on uh, results of past behaviors from market averages or Monte Carlo scenarios, but rather to test the performance of every choice you could make against the widest range of possibilities from the absolute best case scenario to the absolute worst case scenario including what's most likely going to happen 
based on the information you have. Even when we do all this, we still don't have batteries for our crystal ball. We can't turn that thing on. We can't see the future, but we can figure out best case, worst case, and most likely case scenarios. And we can make a selection and a decision knowing we've made the best choice with the information we had. In other words, we've maximized our options and done the best we could do. So our goal at our financial firm, Lake Growth Financial Services, is to help our clients reach their financial milestones without taking unnecessary risks. Again, that's our mission statement. That's our purpose. I'll read it again. We work with clients who want to reach their financial milestones without taking unnecessary risks. My experience has been that the results of this approach will outperform clients' needs significantly and mitigate their risks tremendously beyond what they thought they'd have to do or take to achieve their goals. You don't have to jump over a cliff just to reach the other side. Maybe there's a bridge. Maybe there's a bridge. So what I found is that the best strategies for maximizing scarce resources with their money and contains the maximum loss prevention with no economic loss and even growth compared to alternatives uh, are, are found in some of the most unlikely places. People end up with maximum protection built in, even if they didn't initially come to us saying that was their most important financial goal. Because remember, our goal is to never take unnecessary risks. Why do I do this? Well, because ultimately, people really do want protection. They've just never been shown how to acquire protection without taking a bunch of risks and losing everything. This is what we mean when we say we are not your average financial firm. So I'm finally coming back around to whole life insurance. What does any of this have to do with bank on yourself designed whole life insurance? Well, from an economic perspective, a guaranteed dollar is worth more than a projected non-guaranteed dollar. Think about that. You know, it's the old saying, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Well, the same is true from a money perspective. From an economic perspective, guaranteed dollars are worth more than a projected non-guaranteed dollar. Whole life insurance is built on those guarantees. It's built on a unilateral contract. What this means is that one party wrote the contract, that'd be the insurance company, and the other party, i.e. you and me, the policyholders, receive the benefits. This insurance company wrote the contract. We simply sign it. What this means in the legal system is that the courts and Western civilization, unilateral contracts come with it, many protections for you and me, the one who just simply signs it. Since we're the one who signs the document, we carry less power than the one that wrote the contract. And so the courts will uphold the protections of the one who signs the unilateral contract. So the insurance company says, you know, hey, we're going to guarantee you an increase in your cash value every single year for the rest of your life. Then that means that's a guarantee we can pretty well count on, assuming we still live in a society, of course. Now, if you want nightmare scenarios beyond, you know, the end of civilization, go back to episode 113, where we literally deploy zombies on whole life insurance. But barring that, we have a reliable guarantee from the insurance company in this unilateral contract. Now, the guarantees built into the contract start with the death benefit. That's the key and most fundamental part of any kind of insurance policy, life insurance, that is, is the death benefit. That is a guarantee to your family's future. But it does not mean that it stops there. We also have an increase in our cash value on a guaranteed basis for the rest of your life. And 
the premium is also guaranteed, meaning you don't have to worry about inflation on your expense in the policy. All of this and the guarantees are really not built into any spreadsheets and really not emphasized in many life insurance illustrations. There are so few moving parts inside of a whole life insurance contract uh, that the owner of the contract has a significant amount of clarity and certainty. If you have very few moving parts uh, where they can move against you, then you've got some simplicity, some clarity, some certainty. And honestly, I cannot find it in any other method in the financial universe for obtaining and building my wealth. So for example, even something as real as real estate has a lot of moving parts. Even if it's uh, just building, buying a building down the street, I might feel good about the purchase. I know exactly what I bought. I can see it. I can touch it. I see the bricks and the drywall and the roof. I know exactly what my price was. But I might have a lot of unseen risks in that real estate. The contract I signed, right? What if my property taxes double next year? What if the furnace breaks this winter? The economic certainty of whole life insurance by contrast to real estate or stocks, certainly, it allows people, myself included, you included, to make decisions outside of an external to their whole life insurance policy. What that means is that you're able to be more confident driving down the road of your financial life as if the sun is shining and you can see for miles. In contrast, many at-risk products or investments, I might include mutual funds, index funds, universal life insurance, and lots more, uh, will raise the case for driving great through the rearview mirror. But you might not feel safe making significant, bold choices into your future based on some expected performance of what your investments or your in, in indexed universal life policy might do. There's so little certainty to look out the windshield uh, into a financially uncertain future. I'm, I meet people like this all the time who are living in sort of a wait and see mode throughout most of their life. The true economic cost of that uncertainty, of that wait and see mode, of that anxiety mode over your entire lifetime is absolutely enormous. But none of those costs were disclosed anywhere on their prospectus or their proposal because the cost is almost entirely unforeseen, unseen, and therefore it's not mentioned. Guys, there's a famous quote by Mr. Rogers. He says, whatever is human is mentionable, and whatever is mentionable is manageable. We have to take what is unseen and make it seen. When we live in fear of what the market's going to do to us in the future, we don't have certainty and we live in fear and worry and doubt. It's just like embezzlement. The cost is real and will definitely keep us from achieving our maximum economic potential. Your fees in your Vanguard IRA might be low and the term insurance or the variable life insurance premiums might be attractive, but the true economic cost of those strategies is enormous due to its lack of certainty. So the rate of return of certainty is real. And the economic value of whole life insurance is not just the rate of return on the cash value. If you were to look at a spreadsheet or an illustration of a whole life policy's cash value, you wouldn't see the economic value of certainty built into that spreadsheet. It's not even in the creation of your estate for charity or beneficiaries when you pass away. It's definitely not mentioned the tax treatment of the policy. 
Rather, the economic value of whole life insurance lies within the world of economic possibility that's opened up for you during your lifetime because of the certainty you have in the contract guarantees and the resulting choice that you now have to make in every other area of your life without fear or worry or doubt. In a very interesting way, the owner of the policy is also the beneficiary of the policy. What I mean by that is that during your lifetime, you become a beneficiary of the certainty and the economic freedom that comes with owning the growth and the guarantees of that contract. How do you reach your financial milestones without taking unnecessary risks? What is the macroeconomic rate of return on a whole life policy? Well, you know, at some level, maybe this is why people refer to this strategy as being infinite. How can you duplicate the economic value of freedom without using whole life insurance and taking away the increasing economic risks or cost? So far, I, guys, I just have not found a better way. So here's some takeaways from today's deep dive. Remember that your money is just a certificate of good performance. When you get a paycheck at the end of the week, when you get a commission check from your boss or your business, it is just a certificate of good performance with your fellow man. So what value are you bringing to the marketplace this week? How can you leave people better off than you found them? That's something you could ask your kids as you're teaching them about money or yourself. How can you leave people better than you found them? Second takeaway, start with the objectives, not the methods. If you begin with financial products, you might end up following someone else's objective. You know, they'll thank you for their help toward their retirement instead of you helping you toward your own retirement. So start with a philosophy, a process, an approach. If your objective is maximum utilization of resources, then it might lead you to whole life insurance as will be part, at least a part of your overall strategy. The third and final takeaway, the man who inspired the content for today's episode, Les McGuire. He wrote this article in 2003, but then he passed away tragically in a plane crash just three years later in 2006. So I want to end with unseen risks. Did Les McGuire know when he was writing that article in 2003 that he was just a mere few years away from the end of his own life? No doubt. No doubt his family, his beneficiaries received massive benefit from the whole life insurance contracts that he undoubtedly had in his strategies. Could he have maybe gotten and chased maybe a higher rate of return those last two or three years of his life in the stock market or real estate markets? Sure, sure, I bet he could. But I'm sure his family was sad to see him go, but I bet because he had whole life insurance in his portfolio that they were made happy on a very sad day. So thank you to Les McGuire and his legacy for today's episode. And thank you guys for being a part of today's episode. Take the rate of return of certainty with you into your future. And thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.